He is a Denver native born of Denver natives. A former Denver chief deputy district attorney, he is now an active Colorado trial lawyer. Bright, independent, and full of fun, he has been part of the media for decades. This is The Craig Silverman Show. Oh, what a world, what a life, what a day. Saturday, December 23, 2023. That's a nice set of numbers. I've had a great day recording this show late Friday night. Part of my thrill is watching the Nuggets beat Brooklyn and cover, what was it, 122-117, and I had the over as well. Yes, I like sports wagering. Here's a little tip. Clutch bet, they double your money if you bet this spread on the Nuggets up to $15. And that's good. That's a bargain. I like those things. That will be enough for you to buy Harry McLean's book. And it's called Starkweather, and I recommend it so very highly. It's terrific. In fact, for Christmas, Merry Christmas, you can get the book. I have it in my show notes. Listen to it. I like absorbing it. But the picture of Charlie Starkweather and Carol Fugit, that kind of made the story of Starkweather. Back in the late 50s, they committed this crime spree. Nobody heard of a crime spree like that. Young people shooting for no reason. And then what about this 14-year-old girl? Was she culpable That's the gist of this story, which I don't remember because I'm a little too young. I just turned 68, and Harry is 81. He's a Denver lawyer. We have known each other through the years. He's written bestseller after bestseller in broad daylight. Remember that movie with Brian Dennehy? I do. It was terrific. You can probably watch it online now, but read the book. It won awards, well-deserved And then Harry did it again at his advanced age, and this is his best work. That's not just me saying it. It's the Washington Post. It's everybody. He'll win more awards, and here he is in his ninth decade, and he's a great guest. I also got a funny call from a Lauren Boebert fundraiser who wanted to record me, so I recorded him, and we talked about her getting handsy, handsy at Beetlejuice. And I listened to the whole thing of Beetlejuice. We talked about that after the interview with Harry McLean. We will hear from our troubadour with his special song for Christmas, When the Lion Lays Down. He did it with Rachel and Sarah, his backup singers, his daughters, way back when. You will hear it in their voices, and it's all about peace, and boy, do we need that now for the sake of our children. I love my children. Both of them are gifted writers, and who doesn't want to be a writer? Harry McLean has achieved that, so I try to get the maximum number of tips I can for my son, and frankly, for me. Is there a book? Everybody likes true crime. Starkweather captivated the nation. Jean Benet did Christmas 1996. God bless that little murder victim. 
Harry McLean treats victims with decency, and I love that. Harry McLean has a sensitivity to this subject, and it rocked him to his core at his advanced age, and he gets to tell it all to me, his old pal. I have his book. He made it out to me, and he called me a good friend. Well, I think he's a good friend. Even though we kind of disagreed off air, he doesn't like this ruling by the Colorado Four. I kind of love it. I do love it. I wrote a Colorado Sun column you can read about loving it. I'll tell you why, because Donald Trump did commit an insurrection. He's exactly what the Constitution had in mind when they put that amendment in. Who thought it would apply, but it does, to the core. And when you say, well, it wasn't proven in court, well, it's not proven that the guy is over 35 or under 35, or you can't be out of the country for, what is it, 14, 20 years, whatever it is. Do you have to prove it in court? Well, it was proved in court, Denver District Court, and I watched that hearing. I watched it on C-SPAN. I went to the second floor of the city and county building on November 3rd. It was quite an event. I talked with Scott Gessler. We reminisced about the city and county building. I said, remember the fourth floor, all the felony cases? And he said, no, I, I didn't get here by then. So that's how old I am. But the city and county building, that courtroom where this happened, that's where Ward Churchill got his verdict of $1 with me, part of that gallery. And some said I was influencing CU and Judge Naves who said, that's not a victory for you, Ward, and no attorney fees, and that's a David Lane story. But the same building where American history has now been made because Judge Wallace conducted a week-long trial, Ken Buck testified for Donald Trump, Cash Patel testified for Donald Trump. Is it any wonder they came up a dollar short? Brum-pump, Okay. I mean, come on, it's not like they didn't contest this. They thought they won on a technicality. And three justices of the Supreme Court dissented and gave a hook for the U.S. Supreme Court to hang their robe on. But what if there's just, you know, a mutiny on the bounty? A Julius Caesar moment where the Supreme Court says, now we're going to get rid of the tyrant. And this is their chance. Now, it doesn't look likely because the Trump delay game is his best hope, and they feed into it by denying Jack Smith on a Friday night his desire to get there fast on the immunity issue. But Colorado forces the hand, and it makes the ref make a call. Okay, so there's one delayed tactic move that the Supreme Court has approved. Are they going to kick Colorado's 14th Amendment case down the road, or will they address it? I've heard a lot of people, including Harry Opair, Harry, you know you said 9-0 against the Colorado Four. That's what I'm calling them. Melissa Hart, Monica Marquez, and then there's Will, Will Hood, and then there's Rich Gabriel. I know these people. I know the plaintiffs. I know Jenna Griswold, the defendant. I write all about it in the Colorado Sun. Anyway, I'm glad I get to talk to you, my audience, about these important things. And I'll tell you what's important, which is public safety.
And America thought that they had it back in the 50s under Ike. I mean, Harry will give you the stats. His book lays it out. It was bucolic. It was peaceful. It was America at its best. It's what I guess MAGA wants to recreate. Of course, some people weren't doing that great, but the crime rate was down. We've got to talk about that. And maybe that's why Harry's a little more conservative than me, the old prosecutor, me. But I see a criminal in Donald Trump, and I'd like him held responsible for his insurrection. I witnessed it. You witnessed it. We all witnessed it. And the world witnessed Starkweather because video had just been popularized, and you could get video on Huntley Brinkley out of Lincoln. And these guys were on the loose. Who were these guys? Two teenagers. And they were killing people left and right. And men sat in their ottoman with a rifle on their lap, ready for somebody to eat, like Charlie Starkweather to come through the door. It was a dangerous time in Nebraska. You're going to love Nebraska because Harry McLean loves Nebraska. He's from there, and he writes about it. He talks about it with extraordinary passion. That's why this book is so good. He's just a gifted writer, a gifted storyteller, and I'm so honored to have him on. So here's the batting order. Harry McLean, and then we will hear from that fundraiser for Lauren Boebert calling me. Hmm, what's that about? Well, I have been conservative a time or two in my life. And then our troubadour with his Christmas song, when the lion lays down. Thanks a lot for listening. Really appreciate it. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. And we may have a Craig's Colorado Corner coming up because I like talking about all the many aspects of the Trump trials. And there are a lot of smart people willing to do it, even over the Christmas break. I hope you have a peaceful, relaxing break. And downloading my podcast is part of it because you will surely... Learn stuff from Harry McLean. Tell a friend, share. I'd love a great five-star review on Apple or Spotify. And then uh, word of mouth is what it's all about. Harry McLean at his best at age 81, Kanahora, which means that's great. Let's keep it going in Yiddish. It actually means ward off the evil eye or something like that. Good luck to you, Harry McLean. You two are a good friend for spending so much quality time with me and my audience. Get Starkweather for a Christmas gift. Get it on Audible. It's a great lesson. Thank you. It's hot in here. Did that toaster catch on fire? It wasn't that. You choked on that bite of burnt bagel. Why is everything all red? The heat is unbearable. Where am I? Excuse me, your dishonor. May I step in on behalf of my client? Mr. Silverman, proceed. Tell me one redeeming good thing your client did. He was a faithful listener to my radio show. Not good enough. He had decency and compassion for his family. He did end-of-life planning with Michael Bailey. The Michael Bailey? That is kind to your loved ones. That is smart and way too 
decent for this place. Your client can go. And what about me, your despicableness? Why should I? Michael Bailey is my lawyer, too. Go on, then. Get out of here. <laughs> now, part of that was serious, and part of that was fictional. But you will die someday, and if you don't make a legal plan, the government will make one for you. Call my lawyer, Michael Bailey. His rates are reasonable, and he can meet with you and your spouse wherever you want and on weekends and evenings. 720-394-6887 or online at mblawllc.com. Now back to the Fred Silverman Show. Hey, being a lawyer is a matter of judgment. You have to know the law, the facts, but good judgment is essential. If you don't understand how Donald Trump is culpable for the crimes committed in his name, then I question your judgment. I have the good judgment to question Donald Trump. If you want a lawyer like that, instead of a knucklehead who believes in the MAGA propaganda, call Craig. 303-734-7156. 303-734-7156. I am Craig. Craig Silverman. A voice for victims. Welcome to Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. Harry McLean, first of all, welcome back to Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. As I recall, you've been in here before with your bestseller, In Broad Daylight. You don't brag about it in your new bestseller, Starkweather, but I know you are an attorney and entitled to be in the lounge, so welcome back. Thanks. It's good to be here, Craig. I think we gave you one of the greatest green room food Craig's Lawyer's Lounge has ever featured. You know, you also had me for the next book, Once Upon a Time, the Repressive Memory book. Oh, yes. Yeah. I forgot about yeah, that. twice. That's a joke. I've been here twice. No, but that's a joke. See, I forgot about that. Uh-huh. I, I repressed yeah. You repressed memory. it. It was so, it was so traumatic. No, that one, that one was, I read it, yes, and it, the woman and the memory, and I don't know that that was, I definitely make that my third favorite. And and in broad daylight, it's always been in my top ten. And then the movie Brian Dennehy, who ends up being in a movie about Starkweather, but Starkweather is just fantastic. Let's start by not just welcoming you to the lounge, but Merry Christmas, my friend. And Merry Christmas to you too. I'm glad it's here. Yeah, we go way back, but it's not quite here. This airs on Saturday morning, and with the push of a button, people can consume Starkweather the way I did on Audible, and it's rewarding. So well read. I'm going to back up a little bit. Yes. I was telling my wife this morning about the first time I saw you prosecuting a case, and I was amazed at the time, and I was amazed when I was telling her what an incredible prosecutor you were in the Christina Holler case. Why, thank you. You nailed those guys, and you nailed everybody who lied on the stand. It was amazing. And it had a lot of similar concepts, because we had two young people acting in concert, and it was unclear exactly who did what, sort of like Charlie and Carol in your masterpiece. But back to the Merry Christmas, and thanks to your wife. And she must have a good opinion of me now. Yeah, she's very impressed. Well, thank you. And you've seen a lot of cases, and you're a lawyer yourself. Will you acknowledge that here? I am a lawyer. Now, I've never practiced criminal law, but I am a lawyer, true. 
Right. But you don't really bring that up. But at the end, and I don't want to give away the end. You know, normally when I do an interview, I say, do an introduction. But your book is great in every aspect. But at the end, when you reveal yourself, things that I never knew about you, and I've known you for decades, and I've read your books, and I've interviewed you. This is the third time now. I don't know if you remember. Anyway, I don't want to give it away because it's so powerful, the epilogue. And I know in the afterward, you said there were different orders to the book, and I've gone back because I love it, and I consume it again, including the first chapter about the 50s. Maybe let's just start right there. And before we do that, Everybody go to Amazon or Audible and just buy this book, Starkweather. How do you like them to buy it? You probably have your own website. Yeah, no, I, I'm not hooked into the Amazon pay system. They can do it right off, or they can go to the Tattered Cover or their local independent bookstore. It's all good for me. Right. Audible Audible is big. It's the biggest format now. So that's that's new to me, but real interesting how many people enjoy listening to books. And there are parts so good that normally I listen to a book at about 1.7 because I feel like if I'm not distracted, that's how fast I read. But when I'm really loving it, and your words are so great, and they are frequently, I dial it back not to one, but to 0.7 to hear the beautiful sentence you put together. I mean, it's, it's just unbelievable. I just admire you so much as a writer. So everybody, buy this book, Starkweather, and let's just start with that name. I guess I was vaguely aware of it. I was born at the end of 55, and this happened January 21, 1958. That's what started at the Bartlett House. And here we are kind of in the Bartlett House home studio, because my wife's name is Bartlett. <laughs> you don't mention that, yeah. <laughs> I mean, what? Uh, I never heard this story before, I guess, because I was two years old and my parents wanted to shield me from stuff like this. Well, the Bartlett in this case was Carol Fugate's stepfather. Right. And he had been a soldier in World War II. He was in his 50s, a good deal older than her mother. And they were beautiful people, and they were horrible victims, the Bartlett's. They didn't do anything wrong, but I just never had heard that name. And I'd never heard this story, really. You bring up the name Starkweather, and I thought, who is he again? But I didn't really know this story. What do you find to be true? People my age missed it, people a little older remember it? People in their 50s or 60s or 70s have all heard of it. If not the original story, then through the movie Badlands, there was a TV series called Murder in the Heartland. Bruce Springsteen wrote a song, named an album after it. Stephen King attributes his fascination with horror to it. Starkweather shows up in four or five of his books referred to. So it's kind of permeated the whole culture. And a lot of people, that's what they've heard. They don't really know the story, but they've heard about him as some really big bad guy from the 50s, kind of like maybe Bonnie and Clyde, because there's a Bonnie and Clyde aspect to the story. It doesn't hold up very far, but it's it's there. So they've kind of seen him in that context a lot, of, but but they don't know the facts. Right, and before we dive in, I, and it is Christmas, and I know you know about this story of Jean Benet. Books have been written about it, and 
At the heart of that case is a beautiful little girl who was really badly betrayed, like the Bartlett's, by whatever, in their own home. And uh, it's an enduring mystery, and books have been written about that. And I just think about that crime and the fact that there are people now, a lot of people who don't even remember Jean Benet, as famous as that was. I brought up Ward Churchill the other day. People, my it was to an editor. People don't remember Ward Churchill, really. You and I go way back. And just before we dive into the book, how do we know each other in your judgment? I mean, what? Why were you at that trial? And uh, other than broadcasting, uh, describe to me what you. I remember meeting you at at a Haddon Morgan informant party. Maybe not meeting you, but interacting with you there. Yeah. Well, I. I- I found some things of interest in the Christina Holler case, uh, and I was in between books. So I called up Chuck Lepley, I guess the chief deputy, uh, district attorney. Assistant. He was the number two guy. Number two guy. How did you know Chuck? Uh, Chuck was a probation officer in juvenile court when I was the magistrate judge. And Chuck couldn't get in. He wanted to go to law school, but he couldn't get in DU. I was teaching at the law school at the time. I went over there and I said, let, let Lepley into law school. And he got in and went through it. And he always has been really um, kind to me over the years and thoughtful. So I called him up and I said, what's going on with that case? And he said, oh, I'll call Craig Silverman and he'll talk to you. He'll, he'll be happy to talk to you. So I think I called you up or maybe, yeah, I called you up and went in. I can, I can remember sitting in your office talking to you about the case. I remember Chuck Lepley on the basketball court. He's a little older than me, probably about your age, right? He's a little, he's a little younger than me. Anyway, what a great athlete he is. Yeah. And he took up golf, excelled, just every sport. He was a natural. And he was great as a leader of our office. He really was. Chuck Lepley, uh, I owe him, I guess, that introduction to you. So, yeah, we were talking about how that case is back in the news. I don't want to focus on that. Maybe we'll talk about that some other time on this podcast. But let me just find out about your fascinating life. I mean, at the end, you find out a bunch of stuff that I'll avoid, okay? Because I don't want to spoil the book. But uh, when did you become a lawyer? At what age? And how did you become a magistrate judge? And all of that? Well, let me say first, I'm from Lincoln, Nebraska. Yeah, which so is I've, where these crimes took place. Right. It was where Charlie Starkweather was born and raised. It was where Carol Fugate was born and raised. I knew the police chief. I knew some of the victims. Uh, I knew the neighborhoods. My older brother went to, uh, was in shop class with Charlie Starkweather in, at Irving Junior High. So the story comes from, uh, you know, that, let me just back it. There, there were 12 books written about this, about Starkweather. They were people from uh, L.A. or New Jersey who parachuted in, spent a month there, tried to tell the story, and it's got a lot of it. It's easy to exploit the story. There are a lot of kind of uh, sexy facts in it, and they wrote books that weren't any good. And so when I came at it, I said, this story needs to be told by somebody from Nebraska who understands the state, who understood the culture, who understood Charlie Starkweather and Carol Fugate probably more than somebody from uh, Los Angeles would be able to do. So that was kind of my appeal. I, I grew up there. 
went to Lawrence University in Wisconsin, came out to DU Law School. Uh, you want the whole sort of No, no. I mean, uh, I imagine you could go in a couple of directions, Chicago, Minnesota. Why Denver? Uh, it's the first school, first school that gave me a full scholarship. And then how long have you stayed here? For how many decades? Uh, I was gone for two political appointments uh, in Washington, D.C. In a couple of years, I took off and traveled. But other than that, I've been here since 60. Who appointed you and what? Uh, Jimmy Carter appointed me general counsel of the Peace Corps wow. uh, when Sam Brown was the director of it. Oh, my God. And that was a blast. I had a great time doing that. Um, and before that, I was a trial attorney with the SEC in D.C., Man, you've had a lot of gigs. I that get is bored so cool. easy, you know. Right. And, and you know what? Your writing skills are extraordinary. And I know that's true because I've traveled through Nebraska. Back when I played at Colorado College, we would have to take 10-hour band rides, get out and get screwed by the refs in Lincoln or Omaha, one of those small schools. And we called it the zone. But you made Nebraska come alive for me. And now I want to go visit the Sand Hills. And why haven't I golfed at that Sand Hills golf course or seen the, the display of the birds every year? And I did follow the Platte up to the Iowa caucus one year. But the way you write about the Platte, which flows through Denver too, I didn't even realize it was French for Platte. But you go on to teach me so much about our neighbor, Nebraska, that I want to go there. You know, that was one of the purposes, one of the goals I had in this book was, because I know the reputation of Nebraska. You're, you're, you're driving through from New York to L.A., you hit the border, the Iowa border and its cornfields, and then dry land all the way through until you get to Colorado. And uh, I grew up in the Sandhills, which is north-central Nebraska. It's some of the prettiest, spookiest, unusual land in this country. It's absolutely gorgeous. And there's uh, almost nobody lives out there. Um, and I wanted to, exp and it's got interesting history. Fort Robinson was a major fort during the Indian Wars. And it's where uh, Crazy Horse, Horse was in jail there when he was murdered. There's a lot of interesting history in Nebraska. It's just not as easily visible as it is in a lot of other states. So I, I really wanted to, setting, you got, you got story, you got character, and you got setting, right? Setting is critical. I love to write books that have setting. The Missouri book in broad daylight had a lot to do with where it was. Skidmore. Skidmore, Northwest Missouri. This book is a Nebraska story. It's set in Nebraska. You have to, if you want to understand it, you have to see and feel Nebraska, and I wanted to do that. See, I think you did such a brilliant job with Skidmore, Missouri. It leaps to my mind. And the book I rate number three, it was some community in California. Yeah, it I was, can't remember uh, the name. It and was San Mateo. With a big, with a lot of water around there. And it just, with this book, your love of Nebraska just shines through the Sand Hills, Lincoln, all of that. It's your native state. I feel that about Colorado because I'm fourth generation here. And I have had that attitude about Nebraska, but you've changed the way I think about it. Where did you learn how to be such a good writer? Uh, you know, I was in college. I wanted to write. 
always wanted to write. I wrote one short story, got published, and then I went to law school. If there's anything that's going to drive writing ability out of you, it's law school. You have to think from one through 10. You have to be totally logical, totally literal. You have to support everything that you say, right? So coming out of law school, um, I played lawyer for about 12 years, always holding on to the dream of one day writing a book. I, and I listened. I read In Cold Blood, which at the time was considered a breakthrough type of book, the nonfiction novel, which is where you're allowed, you're, you're, it's nonfiction, it's the truth, but you bring novelistic techniques into it. You can start at the end of the story. You can embellish characters a little bit. Uh, you can move people around. You can't change facts, but it's, it kind of opened up the whole possibility of moving into um, the right brain where you, you, creativity has more flow to it than if you're just a long newspaper story. Right, and I'm kind of comforted in the way you started because there's no mystery that Starkweather kills 11 people. And you say that at the start, you describe it and it's gruesome, but there's no suspense. You didn't want to build it that way. You build it other ways, right? Yeah, and actually I started in broad daylight that way too. I started that with the killing of the town bully on the main street. Let's just get that off the table. You know, we, we know what's going to happen. I'm going to try and grab you other ways. I'm going to try and pull you into the stories. Other other ways than who did it. So let's go back to this short story that you wrote and got published. What was it about? And who paid you? Oh, it was just, it was it was paid. Uh, it was published by the college. It was just their little. I know, but did they give you like five dollars? No, 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 just a publication. <laughs> yeah. And what was the story about? I can't even remember right now. I'll tell you the truth, but it was a true story. I, I do remember. Oh, I remember it was. I was in a in the Chicago train station. And I was standing around in the middle, I was like f probably 18, and I had just finished a course in CPR. And all of a sudden, this guy falls over on the ground. People gathered around him, and he's struggling to breathe. And then he stops breathing. And I sat there, and I had that card in my wallet on what steps to go through. And the issue is, or the struggle was, am I going to help him out or am I going to leave? And the story was I did not have the courage to step into that circle of 30 people and help this man out. What happened to the guy? I don't know. I left. And that's how the story ends? That's it. Fascinating. There's sort of a scene like that in that new Julia Roberts movie. Anyway. Yeah, what do you do when somebody's in an emergency? You create tension, right? That's yeah. the beauty of what you wrote. That's the key to writing in a way, right? Keep everybody's attention. Keep them there. Uh, and if you really keep them there, the reader will let you do things like show them Nebraska. You have to keep them in the story. If they come to trust you that you're going to keep the story going and it's going to be credible and it's going to grow and build – they'll let you kind of turn off and go down some little road over here. If you haven't done that, they'll say, who gives a shit about this or that? What are you telling me about Fort Robinson for? Um, but th that's so you have to have that central flow going, and then they'll indulge you, in, and then that starts to become part of the tapestry of the story. It's really exciting as a writer to feel that you're doing that. But how did you get your gift for writing? You know, I, I read a lot of books. 
you are a major leaguer. It's just like in baseball. Some guys can throw the ball 95. You can't. How did you learn that? Was your first book in broad daylight? Yeah, I mean, it was it. There really are two parts to it. One is ability with words uh, to describe. And the second is to tell a story. And if either one of those are off, you're not going to make it. Storytelling to me is you're born. You're a born storyteller. Right, but that's part of being a lawyer too. It is absolutely, and I have fun with that in the book, talking about how in the opening statement the lawyer is saying, "Here's my story. I want you to believe my story." And the defense lawyer is also getting up and saying, "No, no, no. Here is the real story, and it's how convincingly they can tell the story, which often determines the outcome of the case." Absolutely, and you have to keep their attention. The jury is just like the reader of your book. And you grab people by describing, I think your start is the 50s. You describe the era. You you sort of set the place. We know what's going to happen. But why did you feel like I, Harry McLean, I'm going to describe what it was like in the late 50s? Because the 42-year-old millennial is not going to get this story unless I get them back into the 50s. And I know they're not there. I know they probably haven't read about it. It's probably their parents that grew up in the 50s or some of you, even their grandparents. If they don't feel the 50s, the book won't work for them. And it was my editor who said, let's start with it. Let's just you know kick off and start with the place because you've, you, you'll have an introduction that'll kind of hook them in. And uh, I spent some time going back and trying to remember, but it was... Uh, it was still in the afterglow of World War II. That's what you experienced. I'm not going to give away too much, but people can look up your date of birth. You got a Wikipedia page, you're famous, all that, and you experienced Pearl Harbor in utero. That's all I will say about that. Okay, <laughs> keep reading. Well, but, but when you grew up as a kid with your brother Mike and all of that in Lincoln, did you have a television in the house? Not until the mid 50s. Right. So you are the last. I always had a TV. So that separates you and me. You were the last of the pre-TV people. On Sunday night, we would sit down, all the, the whole family, by the radio, and listen to a heavyweight fight between Rocky Marciano and Jersey Joe Walcott. And I'm talking about kids, grandparents, everybody. We gathered around. That was, that was our entertainment. Did you listen to radio... Uh, serial shows, detective shows. I always wondered about that because if a sibling or one of the parents kept talking, would people go, shh, shh, quiet? (laughs) You know, it's not like you have closed captioning anymore. You can rewind. Yeah, you can. People needed to be quiet to hear the radio. So everybody, I mean, it was uh, the Green Hornet, all these great shows. Uh, And we we were addicted to them. Every, Every Sunday afternoon, we would listen to them. Uh, and then TV hit and everything changed. See, that's before my time, but that's exactly what your book is about. It's about so many things, but the convergence of mass murder and television, that's been a toxic mix. And it kind of started right there with Starkweather just because the technology was there, right? You it said- was there, and he was on the run for eight days, particularly three days. Right. And the television... Uh, the networks had just hooked up with affiliates in Lincoln and Omaha and around the country that could broadcast live. 
So you had Huntley and Brinkley every night talking to the local affiliate reporter in Lincoln or Omaha, what's happened today? They would show pictures of Charlie coming out of the courthouse in chains. Never, ever, ever seen before. Now you're not reading about him. He's coming into your dining room. You're going to watch him. He's going to be there in your house with your family, and you're going to remember those images forever. For the first time in American history, we're seeing somebody like this, and this dude doesn't have his head down. He's He wants to be a star like James Dean. And he looks like James Dean a little bit. Yes, and with the, the duck tail. Explain what a duck tail is. <laughs> well, first of all, you got to have fairly thick hair to do it, but it's it's uh, goes back on top and back on the sides. And if it's a real duck tail, you comb it together in the, in the back and you and you, you carve with your finger, you carve a little stroke right down the middle of your back of your head so it comes together and kind of fits, but it looks like a tail. It's not together, it's like that. And Charlie, Charlie kind of took it a step further like some people did and put curls down on his forehead and swept the sides up a little bit so they kind of, kind of came over the back of the head. But it was, yeah, it was a, it was a duck tail is what they called it. And, it. and it was greasy. I mean, you usually use Brill Cream on it, you know. And his was special because he had red hair. And the dude was bow-legged like Floyd Little. I don't know if you were here when he played for the Broncos, yeah, but that's a good, he was a bow-legged guy, that's a good point. and that's what I picture. But uh, not that many people teased Floyd Little about being bow-legged, but Starkweather got teased a lot about the way he looked, right? Charlie was small, five foot five. The average male was five eight. Uh, he had the flaming red hair. He was bow-legged, slightly pigeon-toed, and had a lisp. And from school on, his first day at school on, until he left junior high, he, well, let's just say through grade school, he was taunted mercilessly by boys, by girls. Uh, Day in and day out, he was taunted at Sunday school. He was taunted wherever he went. And he pretty much did not react to it overtly. He did not react bad or fight back or anything until... He came home one day and his dad said, Charlie, did you get into it again today? And he said, yeah, they tore this picture of my mother that I painted away from me. And he said, look, if that happens again, I don't want you to run away. I don't want you to be scared. Turn around, smack him in the face. That was the pivot for Charlie Starkweather from being passive and taking it to being an aggressive uh, he wasn't a sociopath at that point. And he got into smacking people in the face. He'd kick them. He'd get them down on the ground. He'd kick them. He'd rub their face into the gravel. It was this immediate transformation. And as far as I can tell, and I believe it happened when his father told him that's how he should respond from that point on. That's fascinating. I mean, that is fascinating because uh, antisocial personality disorder, psychopaths, I had occasion to prosecute some of them, and I sort of thought that it's inherent. Maybe it's nature and nurture, but uh, you, by the end of the book, hell, you're stomping on his grave, call him a monster, and he was. But he seemed to be a combo of the, are you making excuses for him? No. Do you think he was driven to it by the bullying? Uh, you know, the best way you can describe that is that childhood 
participated in the evolution of his personality. You can't say it's, it caused it, but it certainly participated in the evolution of him right. in, into a social. Maybe he was a bad seed, and this made him super bad seed. Yeah, I mean, he had seven siblings, none of whom turned bad, same genetic structure, same environment, lived normal lives. Uh, how do you explain that? Whenever you come up with a theory of where sociopathology comes from, you can find somebody in that family who's exactly the same experience, same genes, who ended up being a fireman. But it's sort of like a dog, too. Most are nice, mine are nice, but I've had dogs who are not so nice, and we've all seen that. And sometimes there are little guys you just don't want to mess with. Yeah, that's and true. They want to prove it. I grew up around a guy named Stevie, and it's like with no warning. Holy cow, this little guy is kicking my ass like this because they're a whirlwind of violence and pent-up whatever. Charlie would see a guy across the street who was six foot two, weighing 200 pounds, and he'd say, I'm going to go kick his ass. And he'd do it. He'd walk over there, and he'd just start smacking the guy. He ended up getting knocked around himself. But the, the bigger they were, the anger he got. Yeah, it, it's, it, it's amazing that during that time period, 1958, how many mass murders were there in America? There weren't any. Uh, and that there were murders, obviously, homicides before that. There were homicidal maniacs, you might call them, but they were, in 1958, 85% of the homicides were domestic violence. The rest of them, most of the rest of them were a robbery or revenge or uh, some, some had some goal to it. It had a purpose to it. They were, they were angry at you or you had slept with his wife or you had stolen his car. So they got wasted. Uh, there were a couple of characters, uh, Bonnie and Clyde, for example, uh, that was in the 30s. That was a long time ago. This was the first person who engaged in mass murder for no real reason. He, he did it because he wanted to do it, and he believed it would make him feel better if he did it, and it did make him feel better. He got satisfaction from murdering people on a, ran, on a random basis, and it was the randomness of it that you're really talking about mass murder, they're random. They walk into a school, they walk into a mall, they walk into a grocery store, they don't know who they're killing. That's not the point. The point is to deal with their own psychopathology and to pay the world back, even if it's people that have never harmed them in any way. Right, it's the timeline that's everything. And then they were the basis for natural born killers, right? Right, absolutely, yeah. And then didn't Klebold and Harris the Columbine perpetrators, they reference natural-born killers. I was just talking to Jeff Cass, who's written a great book about Columbine, and I told him I was interviewing you. Yeah, he sees the connection. He's too young to know about Starkweather. I'm getting him the book for a Christmas present. It's perfect. Everybody should order it because now we see this all the time, and he started something, and it's kind of cool a, you know, in their sick mind to be a copycat and to take it one level further. Was uh, was Starkweather emulating anybody or no. he was just... He, he, was, he was an original. And he, what, what I kind of uh, 
slang-wise, see him saying to the world is and to other psychopaths, look, you don't have to sit down in your basement sticking pins in your mother's image or carving up you know, something, pieces of wood down there and imagining what you're going to do or even going up and killing your mother. There's a whole nother way of acting out. Not only that, now we have television. You won't fade into the background under an insanity plea. You will be covered. And the crazier and sexier and weirder it is, the more coverage you'll get and the more immortal you'll be. Didn't Charlie really want to go out in a blaze of glory, but he just didn't have the weaponry? And and for people who say, I don't know about Nebraska, Craig, well, how about Wyoming? Because part of the story culminates in Wyoming, our neighbor to the north. Yeah, he was captured. And after all the killings in Nebraska, he and Carol fled up through the sand hills. Oh, my, my bad, right. But he commits murder in Wyoming. He does. He commits one murder there. Yeah. Yes. Terrible. So the bottom line is, for him, he expected to die at the end of this. He wanted to. He, he was ready to go. He absolutely was, was ready to go. All he needed was a girlfriend. The old West stories, you have to, the bad guy has to have a girlfriend. Charlie ran into Carol. Carol fit the bill perfectly. Charlie was more powerful. That whole relationship is another discussion. But now he was ready to go. He was ready to kill for her. He wanted to prove to her that he could kill people. And so they took off. Uh, and yeah, his his vision was he was going to be uh, hunted down by lawmen. It was going to be a shootout, and he was going to kill a couple of them to prove to Carol that he could do it. And then he would be killed himself, and he would be, be immortal. Right. D did he think it through? Because throughout the book, you know, some people argued he's not that bright. But you put him there that he had an IQ of 110? Yeah, uh, that, that was a lot of stuff that people said about Charlie that was once somebody printed it, then it's in the next 12 books. No one goes back and looks at the original documents or the original testimony. He was of average intelligence, absolutely. Like to say, well, he was stupid. He was the stupidest guy who worked here. You're going to miss his character if you see him. He's dumb. He, he wasn't dumb. And the only reason he didn't go out in a blaze of glory, come back to your question, was that when they were chasing him across the Badlands at 110 miles an hour, the cops were shooting out their window with a 30-30. And uh, they finally shot it through the back window. Uh, the glass nicked his ear. He started to bleed, and he stopped. And they came out, and he said, look, you guys, I'm out of, I'm out of bullets, or else we would have had a showdown. Now, some people say that's wrong. That's bullshit. He was just a coward. And they had him, and he didn't want to die. But I don't. I don't think so. I think he wanted to die, but he had to be able to shoot back if he was going to die. He didn't have any any bullets. What a different time it was. In the ex in the chair. See, yes. once once this happened, he saw he saw the chair. It's even a better way to die. More glory, more attention, more drawn out trials, and the electric chair and the pen and the lights were going to dim and all that stuff. I think he was. I mean. He was absolutely ready to die in the electric chair. I mean, they went through some appellate processes, but it was mainly ritualistic. He wanted to go, and he wanted to go big. It reminded me of what happened in Colorado. It, I'm thinking it's the same time period, right? A mainliner, Denver. Have you ever read that book about uh, the United Airlines takedown? Yeah. John Gilbert Graham. Anyway, it was the worst crime in Colorado history. 
And that trial from when they arrested him to the execution was about a year and a half, similar to your book. That's what this was, 15 minutes. Right. 15 months, I'm sorry. 15 months, right. That's about the timetable. A lot of similarities between Law and Nebraska in Col- in, and Colorado, right? You've practiced both Yeah, there places. are. And, and, of course, Charlie's only objection to the way he was executed was that he once said to his lawyer, I'm happy to go to the chair as long as I can have Carol sitting on my lap. That image, now that's part of that. If you're, why has he persevered so long in this culture? That image of him sitting there, little James Dean, and this kind of cute little girl sitting on his lap, both murderers, caught the attention. And it's the basis of Bruce Springsteen's song, Nebraska. He's, he has Charlie say that in there, although he has Charlie say, uh, I don't mind being executed as long as I can have my pretty baby on my lap. Uh, Bruce has to, you know, sex it up a little bit. Well, well, what would Carol say about you just calling her a murderer? Uh, I, I didn't mean it in terms of an accusation. Well, she was convicted. But part of your book is really about whether that was fair or not. That's and correct. I'm not giving away too much, I hope, because Carol was 14. And her family, the Bartlett family, ends up being slaughtered. Did she know about it? There's questions. And there are lots of versions. And the book presents it from all sides. And then you get Judge McLean, who kind of weighs in with what he thinks. And I'm not going to give away the ending, but it's fascinating to try to figure out when two people are at a crime, who did what, what's the level of accountability. You went through the big... McNaughton rule with insanity, that was a great explanation. But the felony murder law has come up so frequently in cases I handled, famous cases in the news. You cover all of that. Anybody who likes true crime uh, stuff, this is a masterpiece. It's like I wanted to look at every piece. I didn't want to skip over it. And that it makes it quite detailed. Uh, but going in and explaining felony murder, I just can't say say felony murder. I'm going to explain to the reader what it is so that they can understand what Carol was charged with and why she was charged with that and why she wasn't charged with other murders. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's that sort of detail has to be explained to the reader if you want them to understand what happened in the trials. You were so nice to mention uh, my prosecution of the murderers of Tom Holler. And they were like 21 and 19 at the time. But I was prosecuting a bunch of 16-year-olds, 17-year-olds, 18-year-olds. But Carol was 14. And to me, her age made a big difference. Charlie was 19. But you've thought about this. You were in the legal system. When is the age when we can really say you're you're you are past the point of no return. Well, that's subject great debate, but I think it's clear in this case, uh, Carol was a child. At 14, the law sees you as a child. You can't buy cigarettes, you can't drive, you have no real legal standing, you can't inherit. Uh, and Charlie got her when she had just turned 12. They'd been about a year and a half together. So you have a 12-year-old, and think about what you're decision-making process was, what your ability to think through behavior was when you were uh, 12, 13 years old. Uh, And 
I don't even think she'd be filed on today, even in, even in juvenile court for other reasons. She certainly would not be filed on in, in, in adult court, I don't think. And at what age would it make a difference for you? If she would have been 17, would 17, you look at it yeah. totally different? But now, you know, they're showing that the prefrontal cortex, which is provides the ability to think things through, see consequences from behavior, isn't really developed into your mid-20s. They're showing 23, 24. So if that's true, think of what it was like when you were 13 or 14 years old. I have thought about this. I've thought about it a lot, and some of the people who were young when I convicted them are kind of old in prison now, but I'm still around, and they'd like to get out. So I hear about those things all the time. People took sides in this, especially in Nebraska, especially in Lincoln, your hometown. Uh, what's the attitude toward Carol? Because everybody knew Charlie did it. He confessed six ways from Sunday, but part of the dirt spilled on Carol was him saying he never saw, what was the expression, anybody so trigger-happy in their life when she emptied her gun into one of the victims? And was that true? And, and, and here as a prosecutor, it's what I would have done with all those statements. I would have taken everything Charlie said and, and disregarded it, except for maybe through his lies, you could learn some truth, right? Because he just... He, he just bullshitted the cops and in every way he could. In the beginning, he said Carol had nothing to do with it. He said that for almost a month. Every time he was interrogated, every time somebody asked him, uh, in the formal interrogations, on the record, his statements, Carol wasn't there when I killed her parents. She didn't kill anybody. Then February 22nd, 1958, he shifts. And now Carol is there. And as time goes on, she gets more involved in, in other murders and, in fact, probably killed the maid and did kill the traveling salesman in Montana. But it's a, it's a progression through her increased involvement all the way through until he has her actually this little – I mean, she's, she's five feet and weighs about 98 pounds. And he has her stabbing adults to death in a bed, uh, 10, 12 uh, stab wounds. Uh, and it, it gets more and more kind of hard to believe as time goes on. But uh, yeah, he was the main. He was the main. He was probably the only witness against her, except herself. Right. In her statement. And, but the media picked up on that. And you said a traveling salesman in Montana. He was from Montana. From right? Montana, correct. Who happened to be in in Lincoln. Wyoming? The media. Or, uh, he was the guy in Wyoming, right? He died in Wyoming. The media, law enforcement, every institution in the state, in the city. Were turned on Carol and were convinced she was involved in it. Yeah, Charlie Charlie confessed, but Carol, Carol's a murderer too. She was in there with him. She had chances to run and she didn't run. And they painted her uh, as evil as Charlie. And they were going to bring her down. They had 10 murders. And I saw the prosecutor's statement. They started with one, the felony murder, they went through, they had them lined up. They were going to try her until mm -hmm. they got her. And don't forget, in that time, she could have been sentenced to death at age 14. I've thought about that a lot. They, you've triggered me on so many cases. I've had some, I had a 16-year-old mastermind while we were chowing down before we started this interview. Uh, 
I mean, women can be sociopaths too. But we're not giving away the whole book by saying that uh, Harry advocates a different direction. Here's what I love. In the tradition of Norm Early, who is Chuck Lepley's boss and good friend, we learned to respect for victims. They were champions for victim rights. The Denver DA's office made a name, Chuck and Norm. And I like the way you treated the victims here. I like the sensitivity. And one of these murders was really pretty close to home for you. And this got to you. This wasn't writing about Skidmore or some town in California. Starkweather and Carol, they came out of your soil. That's why you put it in your beautiful book. And you're trying to figure out why these people your age, roughly, coming out of the same place you did, kind of changed America in a way. Or they were the harbinger of what was coming. Yeah, I mean, it was eight years later, Charles Whitman was up in the tower at uh, at the University of Texas in Austin with a high-power rifle, shooting people he didn't know. Mm-hmm. And not a direct causal relationship, but I, and it's, it's television, books, I mean, the whole work's just what happened to Charlie. And he's not as famous as Charlie because you didn't have the boy-girl thing, you didn't have him on the run. But that idea then of shooting random people, that started with Charlie. No, it did. And the guns. Have you ever thought about what Charlie would have done with an AR-15? <laughs> That's a good question. Uh, his favorite gun, all he ever had was a, was a twenty two, And that's, other than one exception, that's who he killed people with. And the first one he's killing people with, it was, uh, you had to lock and load each shell. I forget what you call them. But, uh, and then he eventually got one that had a pump on it. But when he was killing him, his parents, he had to lift the... Here's what I'm not sure of as they come away. Uh, obviously, Charlie had an interest in sex. He talked about it a lot. He had a swagger, James Dean style. But did he have a lot of sex with young Carol? Did he rape any of his victims? There are some insinuations that he was impotent and that was the source of his rage. Does anybody know the truth about that? Only Carol knows, uh, and she's still alive. Um, and she has maintained since she got out of prison, that she never had sex with Charlie, that she had a uh, doctor examine her hymen and it was still intact. No doctor's note has ever been produced. During the uh, investigation and the trial, she admitted to having sex with Charlie on on several occasions. Uh, and she did say at some point that he was was unable to perform, but she never said in those early years that she did not have sex with him. And I, I, I believe that she did. And that as, as far as a 14-year-old can consent, it was consensual. Now, here's where the problem uh, takes flight. And that's when people want fame. Just like Charlie Starkweather wanted this James Dean image. And he would pose for any time the cameras were around and they were always around, he'd strike a pose, right? And it became all around the nation. And what do we have since then? Copycats. You ask people what they want out of life, young people, hell, maybe you and me. They want fame and fortune. 
And some people want it in the worst way. And killing people is one of the worst ways, but they still want the fame, right? Isn't Absolutely. that part of what Charlie wanted? And now with yeah. television, you have this toxic mix. And what do we do about it? They Harry? get it. They get what they want. That's the amazing thing. I mean, that's not like the press has ever learned to control itself. And I'm not sure how you could get it to or if it even wants to. But it it's not backed off at all. Uh, they say, well, we're not going to put their names in the paper. But that's always there one way or another. Uh, their fame doesn't last as long because there's always someone coming up right behind them. But they're still, they're immortal in the history of mass murderers. Just back to the victims. I bet some of them are pissed off at you. Are they? Uh, some of the people from Bennett, Nebraska, where there were three murderers there, but and a young boy and girl, 16, 17 years old, who stopped to pick Charlie and Carol up, were murdered. Uh, Charlie shot them both to death. And their relatives um, were particularly uh, anxious for Carol to get the execution when she was convicted. They, the, the parents of the boy said outright, we want him to die. Some of the siblings of the girl said, we think Carol not only is she guilty of murder, but we think she should die too. So they And they objected to her parole in 1976. Uh, and at her pardon request in 2018, they showed up and uh, made statements to the press that they think she should never be released. So that, that hung on with them. And this attitude toward her hangs on there today. I uncovered it time and time again. Carol is as guilty as Charlie. And I'd say, what's the, why do you think that? What are the facts you have? Because she could have run. She could have run and she didn't. The animosity toward her personally was probably more intense than it was toward Charlie. But what about that argument? And wasn't it taught to us, Miss Prison of a Felony, that you have to report it, you have to do this or that? I mean, when I read the, the story, I, I listened to it. I didn't like Carol. I felt she was culpable, and the only reason you kind of convinced me in the end is because she's so damn young, and her mind isn't formed. But a normal person witnessing the various horrors would have tried to stop it, I mean, escape. Uh, I don't know, but I've never been a 14-year-old girl. And the one thing, one piece in here is... The question is whether she was at home when Charlie killed her mm -hmm. parents or not. How you answer that question decides which right. way the story goes. She always maintained that when she got home after school, Charlie told her that he had her parents hidden away somewhere and that he was going to kill them and her little sister if she tried to run away. So she claimed that she was a hostage all the way through the story. It's a little hard to believe, right. but then like you say, you know, how, how, how clearly could she think and add things up and analyze the logicalness uh, of a story? Oh, what happened to the Bartlett's and to the other poor victims and so often in their own home? That's the big nightmare, right? A home invasion, crime. I've handled those. Again, you're triggering me, but it also triggers me to think about that level of street crime or home invasion crime as an act of warfare now. I was thinking about Hamas a little bit uh, as I'm reading your book, consuming your book, thinking about just the horror, and I've had a lot of victims who knew they were going to die, 
They got a bad guy in their presence. They're not disguised. He's not going to let me live. And the horror of their last moments and in their own house. And some of them fought back, but it, it wasn't fair because Charlie was armed and he had the element of surprise. It was there. The, the home invasion thing is there's no place that's safe. Right. And that's what they came to believe, not only in Lincoln. I'm talking Scotts Bluff, Nebraska. I'm talking Omaha. I'm talking across the border in Iowa. Charlie was, was, was everywhere. They couldn't find him for eight days. They did not know where he was. So he was in your basement. He was in your car because he did that. He showed up you, you and killed could, people. Yeah. I and mean, they're absolutely terrified uh, because they, they couldn't ever get their hands on him. He'd murder two people here. The cops would go there. They'd say, well, we, we know he's here in Bennett. He'd be back in Lincoln killing people. They'd go to Lincoln. they say, well, we got him now. And then he'd be off somewhere, killing somewhere else. They always he killed behind. somebody in Wyoming? Anyway, that was late in the game. But the bottom line is this. A beautiful writer named Harry McLean kind of summed it up that fathers went and got their guns, and they sat in a chair looking at the front door, ready for Charlie Starkweather if he happened to come into their house. And that, that image sticks with me. That's what they did in my house. I was away at school at the time. My father was an actuary, okay, an insurance executive. Very nice guy. Your stepfather. My stepfather. And they went down and they got my father's World War II rifles out, and they set up as best they could, uh, expecting him. In the, and they put the cars out on the street and the keys in it. If you want the car, Charlie, here it is. <laughs> you don't have to come in the house. Uh, it was getting scary at the very end because the panic had turned into uh, dangerous behavior. There was a lot of drinking. There was a lot of guns. There was a posse that formed. Someone was going to get shot. Everybody says that. It's absolutely true. Uh, and right before that moment hit, they caught Charlie up in Wyoming. And it's because it's on your TV and it's the scary machine on your radio too. Yeah. And that's what sells, right? Yeah. To a degree, it's still... You know, you go back and you look at the press just for a minute there. They convicted. I mean, they were calling him the red-haired uh, runt, and they were calling him uh, all these apple... You know, But he was the, guilty as crap. The, the, and the he murderer. confessed to everybody. It, and they call Carol Charlie's companion. Well, what does that mean, you know? Well, she kind of was. She they was in a way, but they, and they, they, they and was you never. Said, oh, so back in that day, a 12-year-old, 13-year-old, 14-year-old, was that strange or normal in Lincoln? No, it was totally weird. I mean, there had been seven murders in Lincoln. In no, but what about that kind of relationship? But did, did it start younger, 12-year-olds, 14-year-olds? I don't think so. I uh, mean, my mom got married when she was 19. Let me just uh ask you this. What are the lessons of your book that apply to today? What do you think the top one is? Uh, are there solutions for these mass murders? Uh, you go through the trauma. That's a big part. And I'm wondering if I'm experiencing trauma from my prosecutorial days. Is that a factor or is that too touchy-feely woke for you? Where do you stand? No, I mean, it's not. One of the the things I try and do in this book, and you can't quite do it, is to try her today, as if she were coming to into trial today. What's the evidence, and how would we look at her today? Through the and 
They had that possibility then. It was called the defense of duress, but they didn't know what to do with it. Today, they walk what I call trauma psychology, all the stuff about dissociation, repressed memories, multiple personality resulting from childhood traumas through the duress door. And it's, you'll see battered women. I, I mean, how many defendants now claim that because of a bad childhood, they were traumatized and shouldn't be held personally. And now it's, it's an everyday thing. Back then, no one did it. Carol had no opportunity to uh, introduce anything about it. They, they could have convicted her and put her to the chair without doing a social history of her. They knew nothing about her. So I, I think that, you know, it's what, what's interesting to me about it is to take, take the concepts of trauma psychology and apply them to Carol. Uh, but you know, a lot of things has changed. You can't, you can't be uh, electrocuted now based on a felony murder. A 14-year-old can't be put to death. Right. A lot of things that were, that were uh, present with Carol have now been ruled out. So I don't think she'd be in much jeopardy. I, I think that's true. And a lot for the better. And here in Colorado, we don't even have capital punishment anymore but do you agree with that i i ended up agreeing with it because i don't trust government right now and the people who ultimately have the power to do it uh or who might have that power i don't trust them plus it didn't work in the case where i got denver's last death verdict 18 years later he dies on death row of hepatitis c with his last appeal pending that's too slow and I used to think, I used to say, if you want a case that never dies, do a death penalty case. Because it wasn't 13 or 15 months later. It was 18 years later. And it felt like I once filed a motion motion for some judge to do something, you know, because that's the way they express their disapproval by making it stall out. But I, I think our government's so messed up right now that I don't trust them with I, capital I punishment. I would agree. So uh, thanks for the good question, but I'm wondering about you. Have you always been against capital punishment? Uh, no. I mean, I didn't have any problem with him executing Charlie. Um, the only rationale for it that I can see is seeking vengeance. Uh, and let's, everybody freaks out over that, but let's, let's think for a moment. Calm down a little bit. If you, if you are angry, if you have been... If your wife has been murdered and you have those sorts of feelings in you, they are going to control you. They are going to haunt you for the rest of your life. And society as a whole, vengeance, seeking vengeance is not necessarily the wrong way to handle it. It's in a way it could be kind of a release of really harmful, toxic emotions. That's the only rationale I've ever seen for it that makes sense. To me, and I'm not saying I would support it based on that, but I can see that theory. I agree. The way it's used so infrequently, it has no real deterrence value, right? Yeah. Uh, and it is about retribution. I kind of hate that word because it comes out of the mouth of a guy I don't care for that much. But I was their retribution yeah. because if a system, if a government doesn't react to an atrocity like what happened to the Bartlett family or the Ward family, if that person gets a slap on the wrist, well, then people will go nuts. They're doing that in Philadelphia right now because the DA won't get serious about crime. That was my job, and I'd go to a victim's family. I'd say, 
There's a massive injustice. I can't bring your loved one back, and I know you're pissed. Put it on my shoulders, because I'm going to bring you justice. And the best justice I can bring is the truth. And that's what you seek in your book, to get at the truth, which is the best we can deliver in a homicide case. And sometimes it takes a toll. It took a toll on me in certain cases, but there's something about Starkweather, and we learn about it in the epilogue, that it took a toll on you, spring chicken. Yeah. I, I kind of saw it coming. You know, over the years, between other books, I would go back to, I'd think about, maybe this is Starkweather. Maybe I should do Starkweather. And I'd always veer off from it without quite knowing why. When Carol's pardon was denied in 2020, I took a look at her performance on a uh, current affairs show. And she was so convincing of her innocence. I sat there and I said, that has never really been looked into. I also knew I was going to go back into my childhood. There was a lot of, uh, a lot of death and alcoholism. And my father and my sister died when I was quite young. So I w- it was not a happy time in my life. I never went back to Lincoln after I left because of that re-experience. I thought, if you go back there, you're gonna have to go to every junior high school you went to, to the roller skating rink, to your dad's office, to the houses where people were killed, and it's gonna, you know, and it did. It was actually worse than I thought. And one of the ways that it was worse is what you just mentioned. When I wrote of the murder of somebody, I lived it. I relived it as I wrote it, which I have never done in other books. You keep murders of children at a distance. You're a journalist, right? You keep it out here. I couldn't keep these murders out there. I went through them because I knew some of them. And I think it's reflected in the telling of the story. Was It wasn't, it, it, it was uh, a tough experience for me. And, and you're talking about people seeing they're gonna get killed. That girl from Bennett, she saw Charlie shoot her boyfriend and kill him. And for about two minutes, while he was loading his gun, she knew she was dead. That, to me, was one of the most painful moments in the whole book. She sat there, 16 years old, a farm girl. She was going to get married, move to Lincoln. She was going to go to the university, get a degree in teaching. You know, you could see her whole life play out ahead of her. She was happy. She was. They had six six students in the senior class at Bennett, and it, I don't have any trouble seeing what her life. And just just like that, it was over. Mm-hmm. And that's what I'm picturing on these kibbutzes in Israel. You look out the window, guys with guns shooting your family. You realize what's happening. Yeah. Now I've idealized your life. You wrote a bestseller. Got turned into great motion picture in broad daylight. You said you decided to take on this project. You confessed your age at the start. I already did, in a way, in my podcast. There are no secrets, and we're not women here. But my God, you're... And what age did you take on this project? And and the writer's life, that's what I'm intrigued by. Do you have your option? And when you write one of those top bestsellers, are you made for life? Uh, no. <laughs> I mean, if you churn, churn one out every other year like Grisham, then you are. But I was very fortunate. I was able to make a living as a labor arbitrator. 
So I wrote only books that I wanted to write, that I had some personal need to write. And those are six books. Uh, if I had been trying to make a living from it, I would have had to turn out a book every year. And I had 20 of them, and half of them would be books I didn't give a shit about. And it starts to affect the quality of the books if you got to turn them out like that. So I haven't really made a living from it. Although there's already movie interest in this book. Three, three production companies have contacted my agent. And I can see it. I mean, I can see it as a, as a new story for America right now. I would hold out for the one that makes you the major character because I think you are the star of the book. Yeah. There have been a lot of books about Charlie Starkweather, but it's about this grizzled attorney writer who gets deeply affected by what happens in his yeah. hometown. That and would that would have to be the story. Yes, uh, you. Who's going to play you? Sam Elliott or Walking uh, uh, Phoenix? Those have been the two that are most commonly suggested and you are a handsome dude and uh, Sam how, how, getting you're so thing. tall i used to be taller than you but i'm I shrinking. Think you are still. well i used to be yeah how tall were you at your peak six three i was six five i think i'm down at your level now but i want to be up at your level someday you're 81 is that true 81 and i knew when i took this on at 79 i said you're 79 this is going to take two years you could go at any moment now. You know, when you come out of here, you're going to be 81. You could be eating pablum at 81. Are you sure you want to do this? And I said, I'm sure that I can't not do it. I think your writing is even more spectacular than your previous books. Is that just a sign of your wisdom? How does that work for a guy to get better as he gets into his 80s? That's very gracious of you to say. One of the things that was interesting here was the mixture of the left brain and the right brain. The legal stuff had to be expressed through the left brain. It had to be logical. It had to be sequential. It had to make sense. To tell the story, to pull the reader into it, you had to move out of the left brain or it was going to read like a legal opinion and move into the creative right brain. And those two had to be, had to fit together. They had to mix. They had to meld. Uh, they had to be part of the same movement of the story or was going to get out of whack. And one of the things I think I'm fortunate with is both of those brains are fairly active, but getting them to fit, uh, it was tough. I mean, after six months of writing, I think this is in the book, uh, I was coming, I, I wrote from 6 a.m. in the morning till like one. And I'm about six months into it. I'm thinking about it 24 hours a day. I never forget it. Everything I do or see comes through the lens of the story. And I'm walking out of my office one day. My wife's coming down the hallway, and she stops. And she says, I remember what she says. I want you to go into the bathroom and look in the mirror and take a look at yourself. And I said, I think I'll pass on that. I didn't want to see. Another time, we're walking down. So I'm... I, I, I and, and, tell, and it's from 6 a.m. to 1 p.m. Yeah. And then that's when you come out of your cave. Where are you writing? In, in a little cubby? or it was a, At this point, we were down in Florida. I wrote in Greece, rented a house in Greece for a month, uh, down in Florida for four or five months, in Denver for four or five months. I moved around a lot. Uh, but one Does time it matter where you write? What's that? Are you more productive in a certain place? Strange, I mean, strange place. A strange place. A different place. Because it's yeah. inspiring. So yeah, when you it's went not, to Greece. I it, don't feel familiar to anything. 
it stirs your creative juice. Absolutely. See, for uh, what I was trying to say, it's really hard to explain, but to make to get that creativity going, you have to get you have to get outside the guardrails. You almost have to go a little bit crazy to get that sort of intuitive flair where you say things that I don't know how to say it that that don't read like a newspaper article but are still accurate. You, it, you have to get outside the guardrails, but you can't go too far or it won't make any sense. There's a balance in there where you have to be kind of nuts while you're writing it to get all the way into it. But you've got to keep yourself hooked together too. So you keep your left brain saying, okay, I'm going to eat dinner <laughs> six o'clock tonight and then I'm going to go to bed. And I, But I would tell my wife everything. See, I would regurgitate it to her, poor thing. And uh, she said, I don't think I've ever seen anybody with bow legs before. So we're walking down a, in a mall and there was a guy about 20 feet ahead of me and I said, see that guy, see his bow, that's just what Charlie looked like. And she said, can't you leave it alone for just 10 minutes, my <laughs> God. Now you can show her a picture of Floyd Little, but uh, you, yes, you, I'd forgotten about him, but I can see his, his image. Yes. Didn't he go to DU Law School too? No, he ended up having a great car dealership in Southern California, and he recently passed away. But uh, Floyd Little played at Syracuse before he was first-round draft choice of our Denver Broncos. Did you root for the Broncos growing up, or they didn't even exist until 1960? So you won in him. I was in school in Wisconsin. You're either for the Packers or you're for the Bears. Right, and you do reference Nebraska football several times because that's like a religion there, a broken religion, but a religion. So that's But you know, they just signed the top quarterback coming out of high school. They ripped him off from Georgia. He signed with Nebraska yesterday. You are Nebraska through <laughs> and friggin' through. Are there any other writing tips? Because it seems to me that when you took on this project, you had a team assembled, right? You have an editor, you have a publisher. Did you do it in the blind or did you get an advance? How does that work for a, I got for an advance. I mean, it wasn't huge. I didn't go with Simon & Schuster. Uh, I went with Counterpoint Press, which is author-friendly, strong, big independent, but very supportive all the way through. Every I was consulted on everything, the cover, the typeset. I was with HarperCollins. I saw the cover when the book came out. So there's a lot to gain from dealing with with an independent press where they really care about the quality. Uh, you don't get as much money, but you know I can live. But you had an agent in place, your yeah. editor. Is it like getting the band back together? And do you have to yeah. first make sure all the parts yeah. say, hey, you ready yeah. for another book? And you said, I'm going to start it at 79. I'm going to end it at 81. Did you know it's just that kind of a project? It's going to be a three-year baby. Yeah, yeah, it ended up being being two and a half, and it was the same editor and the same agent who did my previous book, my only novel called The Joy of Killing. So the editor saw the book. He understood what I was going to do. At Simon & Schuster, they said, there have been 12 books written about Charlie. What's he going to do? I told them in the proposal what I was going to do. They didn't quite get it. The editor at CounterPoint said, we can see what he's going to do with here because he's from there and he knows these people. Boy, do some people get it, though. You've gotten reviews that must make your heart go pitter-patter. It's the kind of reviews that authors dream about. Absolutely. Brag on yourself. It's very. I feel very fortunate. 
Uh, if I was religious, I'd say I'm feeling blessed. Uh, but you're not religious? Not in, not in that sense. Uh, but You do describe the way religion works in Nebraska. That's part of your book. But keep going. It's, it's hard to... Uh, it's great. I mean, the ego loves it, right? Okay, so they've got me up there, the top two crime writer, that sort of stuff. But there's another part of me that says, I know better. <laughs> I know. Now, the Washington Post said that your book was up there with Truman Capote, and who's that other guy? Norman Mailer. Norman Mailer. Norman Mailer, the executioner song. I, I, it, right, and yeah. the Washington Post said, your prose is spare and surgical. I like that phrase, too. I love that. Because you get so much accomplished. I can think of things like you describe a hot day uh, and you said, I need a water and, and, and the water was the same temperature as the air. You, you did it better, but you know what I mean? The way you described a hot day reached for you. At the cemetery. Yes. Yeah. And the way you stomped on Charlie's grave. I'm not going to give away too much, but... He was a monster. You ended up really hating this guy because he kind of ruined the image of Lincoln. And what did you call Lincoln? The heartbeat of America? Heart, heartbeat of the heartland, yeah. So, I mean, you know, Nebraska is Big Red and Charlie Starkweather. That's what they're best known for. And they still kind of resent that today. That's, there was a little bit of why are, you, why are you digging this up again now? And I said, because it's never been factually told. It's always been told because you know it's flashy or or something so um i gotta say this about the springsteen song one i can never really understand what he's saying i was vaguely aware he had an album named nebraska but i only looked up the lyrics because of your book and yeah it's all about charlie and carol it's in charlie's head i mean he's, he's speaking out of charlie's mouth right and he got the idea it starts off uh, I see you standing there twirling your baton on your front lawn. That's the opening scene in the movie Badlands. Sissy Spacek plays Carol. Uh, Martin Sheen plays Charlie. And the opening scene is Carol twirling her baton in her front yard. And that's what uh, Springsteen was coming out of a, a bad, he was in a bad place. His river tour was over. He was depressed. Uh, he picked up a book called Carol, which is about Carol Fugate. Got put, this is out of his. There's a book out called. It just came out. It's uh, I can't not think of the name. It's the story of Bruce Springsteen writing Nebraska. That's worth the whole book now. Uh, and he's he watch he reads this book, calls her up. This is 1976. She's still at the newspaper or at the. TV station in Omaha, talks to her, says, well, I'm, I'm going to be in Kansas City. I want to give you and your friends and family some tickets. And she said, who, who, who are you again? I said, Bruce Springsteen. I, said, I, I don't know you. I don't know you from anybody. <laughs> so he then scheduled a concert in Omaha and said, now you've got to come up to Omaha. That's only 40 miles wow. away from Lincoln. That's something. And see, I never saw Badlands. So the stark weather was kind of a news story to me. And I bet that's true for about half of your readers. They oh, just, probably more than half. Well, some of them, they go, oh, yeah, I, right. I, I, I know the name. Uh, I saw Badlands. I didn't quite make the connection, but they can't tell you very many facts about it. 
that's that's the more common reaction of people in their 40s and 50s. I know, but I'm kind of in the business, and you've triggered me, but in a good way. It kind of makes me examine some of my old cases in decision-making because well, you quote Mal- Malcolm Gladwell that a, a social contagion can get going, and prosecutors want to win. And you have to always guard against that. I don't know how much you talked to Chuck Lovely. Were you ever a prosecutor? I was not a prosecutor. I don't have the, I'm not a litigator. I mean, I don't think as fast on my feet as you guys have to. Uh, I'm not three steps ahead of the witness as you were in that case I watched you. I, I, I would be an appellate lawyer. And I did do some appellate work where I've got time to prepare and think and figure out the questions and so forth. That litigation, you've got to be very, very quick and see three steps ahead of your witness. Uh, And you have to have massive control of facts. This person says that, you've got to have all that material in your head and say that contradicts A over here and call them on it. Just like you did in this book. Yeah, but I sat there, I went through my notes. (laughs) I I always said, when I trained, you're allowed to have notes. I mean, we have our notebooks too, but you do try, it's like preparing for a final exam. And you made that line about law school destroys your writing ability. I bet you're a hell of a legal writer too. I would hire you to write an appeal. I'm not bad. Yeah. I'm not bad. Uh, It's just, it's just different, right? How do you, you have to access a different part of your brain. It's what you were saying earlier, even a brief, you need to tell a story. That's what's going to get them to follow your logic and reasoning through. The story's harder to articulate, and you can't make it that obvious, but there still needs to be a story in a brief. Well, we, we both went to law school. We both Where'd have, you go? I forget. I went to CU. I went to Colorado College and then CU Law School. Started in the DA's office in 1980, lasted till 96. When I ran against Bill Ritter, really loved that job. Thought doing justice was important. I, I hope I would have made the right call on Carol, but that was a hell of a case. And you you got close with her lawyer, and, and I sort of felt for that guy because one day you're just living your life, the next day you have a case that's going to stay with you for decades, right? Yeah, I mean, his dad, his dad was the one who handled her during the trial. Right. But the son then handled her all the way through the appellate and parole, which went on for 18 years for free. Uh, So between the two of them, they did about 22 years of pro bono work for Carol. Because in the end, she kind of was a a nice person. And you made this point, and I wonder if it's great circumstantial evidence or it doesn't mean much. But you cited the fact that Carol went to prison for quite a while. We're not giving anything away. So many books have been written. And she was a model prisoner. And then she got out and she led a model life. And do you think that that's good circumstantial evidence that she was a good person all along? Circumstantial. If you wanted to believe the prosecution story, you would have to believe that this 14-year-old girl for eight days turned into a monster. Right. Watched Charlie killed her mother and her stepfather and as Charlie would say, actually took her two-and-a-half-year-old sister over to the sink and bled her out into the sink because she was making a mess on the floor after it killed her. That she went along with that and then was active in the participation of subsequent murders for a total of eight days. And after that, 
after that was over, she turned into a model prisoner and a normal citizen. She got married. She worked for 22 years at the same job as a surgical assistant in a hospital. I went through looking for anything in the criminal records around the country. There's nothing that shows she ever did. So, so you have kind of a normal girl, turned into a monster for eight days, and lives for the next 50 years without incident. And what I hear from you, Judge McLean, is that's not just circumstantial evidence. That's compelling circumstantial evidence. That's one of the things you know, talk about what judges make decisions on. I probably would never articulate that in a decision as a judge, as a reason, but it's one of the things that would influence the way I looked at the case. That informs my job as a lawyer. I'm kind of a wannabe writer. I always think there may be a book in me, but I'm getting pretty damn old. But I know people who are younger than me in my family who want to be a writer, and I don't get that many chances to talk with a major leaguer like you. What advice would you dole out to anybody who has this desire to express themselves on paper the way you did. It's the word you just use, express yourself. What is your voice? And that's a really hard, ambiguous, difficult word. But if you have the voice, if you have your voice, your original voice, you can write almost anything. And I I remember uh, coming to understand that when you don't have it, I don't care how good the writing is, it won't sing. That So that means don't imitate people. I never read anybody when I'm writing. I don't want to read anybody and get affected by it. It's not easy to find, I have to say. You, you write, what was that? Uh, Anne Lamott said, uh, uh, the first draft is always shit. She's famous for that. And it is. Throw the first one away, throw the second one away, <laughs> throw the third one away. How do you write now? On the computer? Yeah, on the computer. Google Doc, or what do you do? Uh, yeah, just, uh, yeah, DocX, I mean. Uh, and do you keep your past versions, just keep numbering the new versions? Yeah. And But you have to, don't think that because you wrote that paragraph, you have to make it perfect. Keep on moving through the story. Write it until it's, you can say, that's not bad. Write, 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 write. Because you can sit, you can might work that one paragraph for three weeks. Do you think it's as good as Drew McApote or whoever your star is? So, And if you're really serious about it, really serious, set a time every day. If you're in school, say 6, six to 7.30, get to that chair. I don't care if you have a headache. I don't care if you had surgery the day before. If you're hungover, sit at that chair and write. And what happens is your system, your subconscious starts to get caught up in that rhythm, and it'll start getting you ready. I mean, by the time I was half the way through Charlie, by the time I sat down, it was all right in front of me. Because all night long, it had been organizing and the voice had been orienting and so forth, and there was no struggle. So every day, every day, maybe take a day off every now and then, and don't worry if it's bad. Don't, you know. Uh, And here's the other thing. Don't trust your wife, your mother, your brother, your girlfriend, their reaction to what you've written. You will never get the truth. You have to hire somebody to tell you the truth about what you've written. Who do you hire? Huh? Who do you hire? But they're editors around. They're all over the internet. You can find them. But aren't some of them scammy? Oh, yeah. So how yeah, do you you've got to look into it. I mean, they've got, uh, I'm trying to think, there's that WeWork site. 
Okay. Uh, they've got editors on. And there. when you said sit down from six to seven thirty at your laptop working, is that writing, editing, researching, or it doesn't matter? I did the I did the writing then, and the researching, uh, and the editing could go on. Yeah, that, that's not that creative. Uh, so you you feel you're your most creative right in the morning. Some people. Uh, do you remember John Nichols, uh, the Malagro Beanfield War? Yes. He wrote at night. He wrote from like 10.30 at night till 7 in the morning. Uh, and that's just the way it is. Just find that time period. It might be from 12 to 5 in the afternoon, which is dead time for me. But but just find that time and then you know commit to it and throw it throw stuff away. You know don't don't get addicted to it. So when somebody reads it, they go. That doesn't work. You you're crushed. You know. Of course, it's not going to work. How many drafts till you show it to an outside person? Uh, well, I would have Julia read some stuff. My wife and she, <laughs> the epilogue. I I wrote it. Started writing and and I wrote a page. And I read it to her. She said, "No, that's no good." And I said, "I got defensive." I said, "That's just because you don't understand it." You know, and then. The night would go by and realize, no, she's right. It's no good. It was like a pitcher waving off a catcher sign. I kept trying. Next day, I had a new one. And what about this? Because it's the day I go in and meet with a detective myself as a kid. And she said, no, no. Finally, on the fourth time, she said, you got it. And she's absolutely right. Oh, I it's mean, it perfect. Yeah, but like, I'm not giving it away, but folks, when you read it, you're going to find out things like, oh my God, this is the best. You thought, this is a wonderful book, but then the epilogue, and it's about you, and that's why you're going to have to be the star. Is that guy in good health? That guy with the mustache, Sam Elliott, to, to play you? Well, he kind of talks on the side of his mouth. Oh, I think right. he's a little too old, you know? I mean, it's the same character all it, the time. I a, think... But, you know, Joaquin Phoenix, he's always kind of crazy, you know? He's kind of like visibly at war with himself all the time, conflicts. I wasn't that bad. So he'd have to calm down a little bit to play me. <laughs> oh, boy. I'd like to see it happen. Do you have another book in you? I think this one's it. I mean, Because I, it, too, it took too big a toll, or you just want to rest on your laurels? No, it's it's the... You know, I watched the show on Barry Sanders the other night, and they were asking him why he quit. He said, I didn't, I didn't have the heart for it. I didn't have the passion. I lost it. And that's the way I feel right now. I, I, it's like I've, I've, I've played my 10 years or, or whatever it is, and I'm not going to go out and try and do a book just to have a follow-up, you know. Uh, and why would – you know, it's like you get that quote from the Washington Post – I'll just leave that there. We can put that on my tombstone, you know? Right. You can't get any better yeah, than that. Yeah, why would I want to fool with that? And, and the <laughs> journal and the Times, everybody's giving you nice reviews. Yeah. Is it, uh, what What a great uh, thing to be a famous author because you're famous. How does that feel? I mean, when you, like, have you been in a pool and somebody's reading your book? Something like that. First of all, I'm not famous at home, okay? Uh, not with my wife, not, not with my dog. How all. long have you been married to Joy? She's 10 out, years. 10 years. She sounds wonderful. Yeah, we've been together about 20. 
Okay. Uh, I she, saw a girl. She's obviously a big fan of yours. Is she a lot younger than Constructive, you? Constructive, yeah. She's uh, about 18 years younger. Nice. And uh, she's from Turkey. Nice. And so she can come in from a slightly different angle, which is mm -hmm. helpful. But I saw a girl. I was at the Berlin Wall when it was coming down. Uh, and there was a girl sitting in a restaurant there, not a block or so away, reading in broad daylight. And it's like, uh, oh, yeah, you know, it's... I didn't say anything to her. I didn't want to interrupt it. But that's as close as uh, I come to a, an ego rush. But here's one thing. I never... In that regard, I feel... This sounds a little corny, but... I feel so privileged to be allowed into other people's minds to have my story go into, you know, become a part of their mental process and a part of their history. That's like, how many people can do that? You know, I mean, that's an amazing thing to be allowed to do. And they are allowing me to into their world. It's like, it's just incredible to have that feeling, you know. And what's book touring like? Back in the day as compared to now. I mean, you're here. I, I really appreciate it, but is it different? And how many interviews did you do back for In Broad Daylight and how many for Starkweather? How has it changed? They toured for uh, In Broad Daylight, on the paperback particularly. Uh, you know, Chicago, L.A., Boston, New York, that whole thing. Uh, they don't tour much anymore because uh, social media is so strong. Mm -hmm. uh, unless you're a celebrity, unless you're Hillary Clinton or somebody like that, and they can draw a couple hundred, two or three hundred people in. The only way it ever made sense, like if you went to Chicago, you're going to go to two bookstores, you're going to sell 30 books, 40 books. It, it was the press you got when you were there. Go on their morning show, do their newspapers, do a couple right. radio things. That's what made it work. Most of that stuff now you can do online. Right. Or, or, or Zoom. So... I've done probably 12 podcasts and uh, six or seven newspaper interviews and three or four magazine interviews. But it's just, it, it has a funny way of, of, of growing. You know, it could it lose momentum, get picked up again. It kind of comes and goes. You can never quite tell what's going to happen. Hopefully it keeps on growing. And I'm sure your many thoughtful, intelligent listeners will just feel compelled. Oh, well, I hope so. <laughs> I hope so, because I enjoyed the book. And one thing I do, and I knew your book was coming out, but I thought, oh, gosh, I don't want to read about murder. I mean, especially after what happened with Hamas. Yeah. And even though I'm kind of in the business, but here's the thing that helped me through it. One, when I started your book, the writing was so fantastic. I felt in your safe hands, and you knew that the murders were going to happen right away. And maybe because it happened in 1958, it's a little easier to deal with because these people would, by and large, be dead, but for poor Becky Jean Bartlett, right? She might still be alive. And I think about these things, and time kind of heals most wounds. That's a so, good point. You know, so so I think this is one that you can handle it. And it's much more of the psychology of Carol and our nation and what we're going through. And that's just where I'd like to leave it, Harry, because you're a smart guy. I think we're at a crossroads right now in America. And this mass murder by too many Charlie Starkweather types, it, it, it's a, a calamity for our country. 
It's and just terrible. There is a contagion effect. I, I'm absolutely convinced of that. And the way Gladwell talks about it, the more, if you if you go from one to two to three, it goes quicker and more violent with each one. Uh, it, it's got a real uh, upswing. And we're, that's what we're in the middle of right now. And who knows where it's going to end up. Well, you're doing it. You're the wise author. You're a lawyer. You're everything. So where's your wisdom? Where should we go? What do we need to do to make our country better? Back to prehistoric weather 50s. I don't think you can go back there. But I would say, at risk of getting into the gun control thing, the only thing I believe strongly there is we should not have AR-15s anywhere in society. There's no reason for it. Totally agreed. I'm so not going to say go confiscate them or something, but somehow you do not need those mass Correct. weapons. That's about as far as I can go on the gun control thing. But, but you know, the kids today, I hate to sound that old, but they're being raised on the internet and they're going to be raised on AI. Who knows where that goes? That's beyond either one of our abilities to imagine what sort of people are going to come out of that process. I know where that goes, my last question, because you, my friend, are famous enough that I bet I can go to Chad GPT and put in 10 paragraphs of my prose and say, make it sound like Harry McLean, and they'll do it. They will do it. I, I once went, once I first did Chat GPT, I said, uh, someone said, actually, they did it. They said, write a poem from Harry McLean to Ken McElroy. He was the bully that was killed in, in Broad Daylight. And it did it. It wrote a poem, and it was in verse. It rhymed. Probably in and, five seconds. Yeah, just like that. And it made sense. That's scary. So are you going to sue? A lot of popular authors are litigating, hey, I worked my ass off to come up with my style, and now anybody can copy me? I, I mean, there's a brave new world. I mean, and, and then are you irresponsible if you don't run it through some kind of grammar or spelling correction? You use auto spell. Yeah. Do you use any grammar help? Uh, no, because the real thing about grammar, I forget who said it, the, the rules of writing. The only rule of writing there is there are no rules. If it works, it works. If it doesn't, screw the rules. You know, they didn't help you out. Well, here's my final comment because you brought up Dale Tooley, I think, before we came down here. Chuck Lepley hired Dale and Norm and all of that. And his office philosophy was... Duels? No, uh, uh, Dale Tooley. Remember Tooley. Dale Tooley? Yeah. He'd say, our only uh, firm policy is we don't have any firm policies. Just do justice. Yeah. Do the right thing. And if you don't, then you can expect us to come down hard. If there's any question, let us know. But we don't have you know, this, that hard and fast rules. So that's what I'm hearing from you. You're a pretty wise guy. So if you're not going to write, what are you going to do? You are going to rest on your laurels, right? So, uh, you know, I might write an essay or, you know, something. I, I don't About know. what? Uh, you know, maybe I should, I just said, did you see this book on this 60-year-old woman who swam from uh, Miami to Cuba? No. Well, that was a big deal. Maybe I'm a swimmer. Maybe I'll swim the English Channel at what? 81. How, that'll go over. That'll get me some How do you stay so fit and looking like Sam Elliott? I just swim a lot, and uh, that's about it. And why Denver? 
Why do you stay here? I'm sort of a Denver-centric show. I know uh, it's gone through some valleys lately. What do you think of Denver? And we talked about what most people in Colorado think about Nebraska. What do most people in Nebraska think about Colorado? Well, they love it. When when you grow up in Nebraska, you come out to Estes Park for summer. I did. Every summer you come out. Some dude ranch or something like that. And there's actually a Nebraska store in Estes Park that sells nothing but Nebraska stuff. So a lot of them will come out here to school. They'll, they'll, they'll go to see you mainly. Uh, so it's, it's like heaven if you're in Nebraska and you're a teenager in Omaha. Colorado is where you go to you know, have fun in the summer and climb and do the mountains and all that sort of stuff. You love Nebraska. Has Nebraska loved you back on this book? They have. I looked for some hostility at some of the signings. There was nothing. I've had Nebraska people, particularly from the Sand Hills, come up to me and say, you got it. You got it. I really appreciate the way you talk about Nebraska. And I'm going up there to do uh, two fundraisers in April for the Senior Center in Atkinson, Nebraska, and uh, the library in Bassett, Nebraska. So we'll make them some money and I'll have some fun. Well, good luck to you people in the central time zone. That's the way we looked at it. A vast expanse of bad refereeing, but that's okay because we felt sort of bad for those Nebraska kids. And you you described the weather out there, and you made me want to go to the Sand Hills. If I get my car right now, how far of a drive is it? You'd be on the edge of it in about 180 miles. Probably go up to Wyoming and then cut east there. Scott's Bluff is awesome to see. Is that Cathedral Rock? Is that what you yeah, call it? There? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. It's unbelievable. Yeah, and it's all been... this sandstone which creates these great these great formations. And the and the golf courses there are have become extremely popular, and they're actually trying to calm it down a little bit because then they got to build. Uh, airports for the jets that come in from L.A. and Chicago and so You forth. didn't quite get up to Shadron, though. I don't think Shadron's in your book. We used to play Shadron. Shadron's a little bit there. east of the it's Sand Hills. It's too South Dakota-ish for you, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, the Sand Hills sit right on the South Dakota border, uh, and it's right on you know, the Indian Reservation coming down there. It's, but there's a, there's a place called Merritt Reservoir, and I just saw this in a story about Nebraska. And... It is so dark in the sand hills. There's, if there are any houses, they're in the in the hollows somewhere. You don't see their lights at all. It is so pitch black for so many miles. You go to Merritt Reservoir. You have a fifty-five dollar telescope. You put it up, and you can see into the next galaxy. The photographs of that are like stunning. Absolutely stunning. So I'm going to do that on my next trip out there. Everything is better in Nebraska. Harry <laughs> McLean. Well, you know, you know, they they used to say Nebraska, the good life. They've gotten a little cocky now. They say Nebraska. Honestly, it's not for everyone. I I always wondered if they were going to get sued over that kind of exclusionary. You know, who are you trying to keep out? But you make the good point that Nebraska's welcomed more immigrants than just about anywhere. A lot of Europeans. We even talked with that Prague murder. Kind of similar to Starkweather. Starts with the family thing, then a guy. Every story kind of reminds you of Starkweather. Oh, the Prague yeah. happened. The that Prague, just happened. Yeah, yeah, that just happened. I mean, you know, Stephen White, you know, mystery writer? Yes. He said to me, when you talk about this book, you say 
You think you know where this all started? I'm going to show you where it really started. I took that to heart. Nice. That it started with Starkweather? Yeah. Because you wrote it down. And you make that point so beautifully. I am thrilled that you came over, Harry. Thanks a lot. And I want to read that essay. Honestly, I was telling my wife, you could be a travel writer because I want to go to the Sandhills now. Who who in Colorado wakes up and says, I want to go to the Sandhills. Why? Because Harry McLean wrote three great paragraphs that captivated me. You That's great did. to hear. That's quite a compliment. I appreciate that. I well, really you do. are the man. It's very sincere. I'll never look at the Platte River the same. <laughs> and if you go to the Sandhills, you have to float down or canoe down the Niobrara River. Go to Valentine, pick up tubes or rafts. What month of the year? July, August sort of thing? You can start in June, and you can go uh, so far and camp overnight. You can take another trip the next day and camp another night. It's it's incredible. That the whole thing is watch McConaughey out. thing, I've never done that. Is that worth doing? Uh, it gets a little jammed up. You know, it's the I'm only body. that Merritt Lake instead. Yeah, Merritt Lake's better. Uh, and if you go to the Niobrara River, watch out. The only problem is there are snakes on the bank, so stay in the river. Rattlesnakes. I'm going to go back to that motto, it's not for everybody. <laughs> I, I don't think I like rattlesnakes. I think I'm going to stay in Colorado, but I, I there's great golf there. I don't know if you're a golfer, but I've heard about that Sand Hill Golf Course. Oh, yeah. Right. I mean, I, I've, you see him, you see signs and there are articles written about him, but you're a golfer, I'm not, so. It's I've one never... way to see the topography. Yeah. Yeah, driving down the road. You bring it alive for me, Harry McLean. You've given me a lively interview and a great podcast. Merry Christmas. No better present you could buy than stark weather. You are just going to be thrilled by the writing. You're going to learn about Nebraska. You're going to learn about a case that was a harbinger of things to come in America. You're going to fall in love with Harry and his book. Thanks again, Harry. Thanks for thanks for having me. Thanks for saying all the nice things. I appreciate it very much. You're very welcome. Bye-bye. Bye. He's the best lawyer I know because he's my lawyer. He's Michael Bailey. I think you pioneered this mobile estate planning, and lots of lawyers are doing it now. And boy, are your clients happy and satisfied. It's convenient for the client. It certainly is fun to be able to go visit people where they are, whether it's at your house or at one of the offices, just to make it more convenient for you. And then it's more fun for me because I get to go out and about and meet people all over the place and help them out. What's the website, Michael? It is mobileestateplanning.com. What's the best phone number to call? 720-394-6887 is my direct line. Michael Bailey, that's our lawyer. Trish loves him. I do too. Thanks, Michael. You're welcome, Craig. Hey, everybody, for all of your legal needs, why not start with me? 734-7156-303-734-7156. I've been practicing law in Colorado for over 42 years, and I know a lot of people. And if I can't do right by you, I can steer you in the right direction. My number, 303-734-7156. 
ask for Craig, Craig Silverman, a voice for victims, a voice for people with legal difficulties. Well, isn't that nice? I got a Christmas present. I like a Christmas present every now and again from an unexpected source. Representative Lauren Boebert had one of her fundraising emissaries call me. I guess I'm on a list, a list of people who might respond to a cold call. I got one of those unidentified numbers that said possible spam, but I said hello, and next thing I know, a guy is saying he's calling me from the Boebert campaign, and he gave his name and said it was going to be on a recorded line, so I ran down to my home studio, because I have a recorded line too, and I got back on, the guy told me who he is, and it was clear that they wanted money from me. And he had a pitch, and I gave a listen, as you will hear. Gosh, I wonder how I got on that list. Maybe when I gave money to Mitt Romney, went to that event at Mike Shanahan's house, he had pictures of Kyle Shanahan, who's probably going to win the Super Bowl as coach of San Francisco. Anyway, that was back when the debate happened in Denver. Marco Rubio was supposed to be at that fundraiser. I gave a lot of money. He never showed up. What a good indication uh, that was of his character. He still hasn't shown up, but Mitt Romney has because he voted to remove Donald Trump. And if more had, we wouldn't be going through this, including the Bobo part. Back to her and the guy she had called me. I heard the initial pitch was for impeachment, and I don't think it's right to impeach Joe Biden especially not on that bullshit that there's the Biden crime family and all the insinuations that go along with QAnon and Fox News. And uh, unfortunately, my former colleagues on Denver Trump Radio, okay, we can see that he's old, but I don't think Joe is that dirty, although his brother worked in the business and made money off the Biden name, but who doesn't do that? In this world, that's not an impeachable offense, but the Boebert person said it's about immigration, and that does appear to get bad right now, worse than ever. People flooding our borders because we are in disarray. Who wouldn't? And the rest of the world has to be hurting as well for this many people to be coming, plus there will be climate migration and Joe Biden uh, it's in a pickle on that. Still not something that should be impeachable. But Boebert wanted this done a while ago. And this is what poll tests for her. And after our little talk about impeachment, then we moved on to his next talking point that he thought I'd like. Because Lauren Boebert came to fame challenging Beto O'Rourke, who came in the wake of another mass shooting and she stood up for assault weapons, so I knew the guy would respond that, yes, let's keep our AR-15s, but he sensed I might not be that receptive because I can't even fake it when it comes to guns. You know, we're just hearing about Charlie Starkweather. We're talking about mass murder, and she's pitching more guns. Is that the answer? And she's not taking care of her kids. Dang, it must be hard to be a Bobert kid so young, going through so much. 
An adolescent knocks up another one. They're having the baby. They don't finish school just like their mother. Now there's a divorce. And it's bad. It's been on the front page. And I've played sound of them really wreaking havoc in a neighborhood. And what are they producing? What chance do these kids have? Especially when their mom then goes to the Temple Buell Theater and plays around with a guy, a Democrat, who has a bar, a rich person's bar in Aspen, part of her district, yes, but he's a Democrat and he's hosted transsexual talent nights, that sort of thing. No big deal, but it is if you're in the conservative a world, and there she was with her date, and they were grabbing each other. She was in his crotch and urging him to rub her boob, and kids went to the theater. It's Beetlejuice. That's the play. The play Beetlejuice. And while I'm working out, I listen to the play, and boy, it's kind of funny, but it's morbid. And the humor won't work right now, especially with the Hamas atrocities, and with mass murder on the horizon, too, and they make jokes about that. I don't think it's funny. That's just me. But I like the cleverness of some of the lyrics. I don't really see where it would become a sensual experience, but you'll hear that the staffer for Congresswoman Boebert, he has a defense. One I heard often as a prosecutor, hey, I was a little... I was a little drunk. Well, he ups that as an excuse. Hey, you know how it is. You get drunk, you go out, and then you make out on the aisle row of a family-friendly theater. Although Beetlejuice is probably for older people, but you know what I mean? You just don't expect that there. Not from a congresswoman. And the way she reacted afterwards, she flipped off everybody, and then she lied about it all, too. And the vaping in there, all this stuff, but hey, it's just alcohol. Well, alcohol takes a toll. If you read Starkweather, it's taken a toll there, but especially on the author, his father, well, you got to read the book, but you don't really need to to know that alcohol is a serious topic. Guns are a serious topic, but I tried to have fun with this Bobert Staffer, and he was good, and he figured out that he was barking up the wrong tree. That's the expression he uses. I'm not sure I like being called a tree because dogs pee on trees, but trees are sturdy and they last a long time. And I've lasted up here to episode 187 and because they recorded me, I recorded them. And this guy did a good job for you, Congresswoman Bobert, but don't you make these fundraising calls yourself? Are you desperate? Yeah, that guy, Jeff Hurd, another Republican, got the endorsement of the Gazette here in Colorado, that's Anschutz paper, to beat her in a Republican primary. And then waiting after that is her opponent from last go-round, Adam Frisch, who was guest on a brilliant episode that almost put him over the top. I'm going to get back to Lauren Boebert's assistant, and the cold call he made on me, and you can enjoy right now. Thank you. Tell me again who you are. Uh, I'm Zach Jones with uh, Congresswoman Lauren Boebert, uh, working on the campaign coming up in 24. Uh, she was one of the first in the House to support impeaching Biden, and 
uh, one of President Trump's staunchest defenders. And because of that, we're seeing a lot of money coming into the campaign against her and asking you to consider a one-time contribution. Our top rule is $2,000. Now, did you tell me that you're on a recorded line, right? So, Yes, sir. Um, and that's just for trading purposes. Okay. Why is she impeaching Joe Biden? She's in favor of impeaching Biden for uh, not protecting our country, letting tens of thousands of illegal immigrants cross this border daily, including terrorists and God knows what else. And um, that is the main issue of concern here. Um, You know, she is also doing a lot of work to protect our Second Amendment rights as well. That's one of her uh, main issues of contention. We have to make sure that our Second Amendment rights are upheld and does that include that Does that include uh, our AR-15s? Uh, well, sir, I, it would. Good to know. And um, I'm, I'm concerned about what happened at that theater in Denver. What was that all about? Yes, yeah, sir. Uh, that was just a bad night of misjudgment, but it would be a shame to let, you know, years of work in the house. Uh, well, what exactly did she do? I'm mean, I'm not that uh, up to date on all the news. What did she do? You said uh, it was got a, a little bad handsy night. with somebody in the theater, sir. Uh, she was under the influence of alcohol, and she does regret it. Handsy, what does that mean? Groping, sir. A man, a woman, a stranger, somebody uh, she knew? A uh, uh, man, sir, somebody she knew. Um, I believe they were on a date. And was this like in an adult entertainment spot or what? No, sir. It was a theater. I think I'm barking up the wrong tree, but I appreciate your time and you have a blessed day. Hey, you have a blessed day, too. Michael Bailey, a friend, a lawyer, a sponsor. Tell everybody how you bring peace of mind to their life. So... By setting up your estate plan, you know what's going to happen to your stuff when you die. You know where it's going to go, you know who's going to get it. We've got everything in place so we're not running to a court to try to get guardianship and conservatorship as quickly as possible. But then it's an orderly proceeding of things. So, you know, there's already enough chaos with the medical emergency, but the legal part of it and who can make decisions is all outlined. It's all set up. So there's, it's like the the smooth transition of power. That's cool because you can avoid so many problems by having a medical power of attorney and discussing it with a smart guy like Michael Bailey because who should have this? It's probably somebody close who do you trust most among your children to make that call these are the hard and good questions that you ask every day right michael right and if you ask them beforehand when you're not in the middle of a crisis then when a crisis hits we're not trying to do crisis management and medical emergency and everything else we're going okay we've got a smooth transition of power here we've got a smooth who's in charge and we can have that all flow so that we can focus on the care There are so many things in life that you can fill out a form and save yourself money, save yourself heartache. Some people die out of nowhere quickly, but more often you get sick, you have medical difficulties, so it all goes together. But your system works. It works beautifully. What is the best way to contact you these days? 
best way, uh, you can give me a call. My phone number is 720-394-6887. And again, that's 720-394-6887. Or you can go online to LLC.com And there is a an appointment page on my website that you can use. So either way is fine. Thanks, Michael. Troubadour, Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Happy Hanukkah. It's over Hanukkah. That's okay. We can still wish everybody. So is my birthday week. But thanks for the song, Simple Man. And we always know what to play on Christmas. Yes, right? this one was, uh, this, is, this is becoming our Christmas tradition song. But it's really poignant this year with all the turmoil. And think about what we were on the precipice of. 2024, without a doubt, to me, the biggest year in, in world history. So many things are happening. That's true. Yeah. I mean, I'm thinking when you're saying that, I'm thinking obviously of the, the whole Middle East you know, conflict and how hopefully that can at least resolve to some point um, where peace can, can, can reign for, for a bit. I'm also thinking when you said that about AI and just what a huge impact it's making now on our society and what just the, even one year might bring. That's the first time I've heard you talk about AI. I'm the guy on a walk saying, holy cow. Right. We're approaching singularity, and you're like, come on, Craig. And now you are bringing it out. Well, I'm bringing what it What happened up. to you that made you think about this? The singularity thing, I'm not, I'm not jumping into that. But no, no, I see, I see that uh, it's, it's uh, going to be something that humanity needs to reckon with, you know, on many different levels. And uh, I don't know. Do you think government is capable of it? Of re oh, you mean yes. no? You mean of controlling it? Yes. No, I don't think anyone's no. United it's, Nations. It's out of the bag. You know, that's the thing. We, if humans can invent something and make it and bring it into being, it's going to happen. Uh, you know, I mean, you know, we've seen in the past. You know what? Here's a wish, and your song is all about a couple of things which makes you such an impressive songwriter. And this might be your best, even though it was a long time ago, just expressing your heart because your beautiful young daughters yes. are in it, right? Yes. Your daddy days, yeah, right? Yeah, that's right. And, and yet you were singing about peace. Yes. So you're thinking about the future generation and you're thinking about peace. We're talking about AI. I think I have the solution. We need to go in the lab where the controls are. Sam Altman, if you are listening, and they listen to everything. Podcasts are part of AI. Okay. Just set the dial for peace and turn on the artificial intelligence and make that the goal. Give us peace in the world. Give us the blueprint. It's an interesting thought, but it would... You'd have to narrow it down, like peace in the Middle East. And then maybe it can draw from, you know, past. It can do everything so fast, though. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It would be, that's a great, I mean, that is a great question. You could ask now, right? You could get right on chat GPT and say, what's the best route for peace in the Middle East? Now? I only have chat GPT 3.5. Okay. There's four out there. Wow. And there's five that's coming. Five, maybe five will bring us peace. I'm thinking about Henry Kissinger who passed away. And I've listened to some documentaries, tried to put the pieces together, but his whole concept was 
if you believe him, and I do, is he was raised like your father in Germany. Right. And he said, we can't have that anymore. We need peace. And if it means working with autocracies like China, we got to do it. We got to get along with our neighbors. They're not like us. But that was his goal. And he tried to put all the puzzle pieces together. And Lord knows he made some mistakes like bombing Cambodia and Laos and some South American manipulations. I don't know what to make of him, but he was a human if you give him good faith trying to work out peace on the planet. But AI is going to be a thousand times smarter. They can take the Kissinger model, and if it's programmed correctly, maybe AI can deliver the peace, and maybe, I mean, on Christmas, that's a nice hope for humanity. Sure, yeah. I mean, ultimately, it's going to be humans that are bring about our own peace. AI might give us some clues. You never know. Correct. We need clues. We need Whatever clues. Guidance. Yeah, we'll take all the clues we can get. What are the clues in the, your song? Well, I think the song is just a, it's more of just a, you know, hope that, um, that there will be, you know, peace, peace can come. But when you lion, think about when, it, lion and the lamb. Yeah, the, the lion. In the world, who's the lion, who's the lamb? Well, lions are the aggressor, right? Lambs are the, are the, are, are the more passive or, or the less um, um, fortunate, right? Um, when, the, when the aggressors can lay amongst the, the uh, more vulnerable and not kill them, um, that's the idea. It's, it's getting back to what you said of Henry Kissinger trying to find, negotiate, you know, or navigate, um, you know, peace amongst you know, war, warring tribes or countries? I'm thinking of our dog walk. And the other day when Skylar was with your puppy, Layla, and of course, Iko was there, and Skylar can get protective of Iko or Layla. And there was that little brown puppy, remember? Yeah. And Skylar got a little aggressive, and the, the puppy just went on its back. Right. And so Skylar was the lion and the puppy was the lamb. That's right. But Skylar didn't do anything. No, Skylar didn't. No, no. Because he's domesticated. Yeah. He's not a wild animal. He's a domesticated animal. So humans need to be domesticated. And we can't... It just seems to me that AI can draw from all these lessons. The animal kingdom, too. Right. Well, yeah. I and, mean, and what if the lion says, I need to eat? Right. He could go to McDonald's. Leave right. the lamb alone. Right. It's a world of plenty. AI can solve hunger issues for everybody, but it's going to be a new world. You're, it's interesting. On the precipice of this new year, and hopefully we'll have a new year show, but it's just good to talk about these things with somebody who's so smart like you, Troubadour, and somebody who's so gifted with this song. Well, you're, you know, I'm really not. You call me Mr. Oblivious for good reason. I normally don't think that hard or that much about world events, but I mean, I try to keep up on it, and, and uh, I think everybody has to, you know, imagine a better world, and, and, uh, but we're all, we're all struggling with how, how that might come about. It just seems like... Um, the cards are stacked against us is how it, how it feels. I mean, and also, since I'm mentioning that, climate change is another thing 
where it seems like the cl- the the cards are stacked against us. I mean, we have we obviously have technology, and we in some respects we've done amazing. We've made amazing progress, right? Just in this last even five years, this last decade, um, you know, with with uh, you know with solar and wind and everything, and and uh, electric vehicles, everything like that's coming into being. But still, as far as the time frame that we're talking about and the world warming up. Um, it just doesn't seem like it's very likely that we're going to meet our goals for climate change. That's where AI will accelerate things. God willing. Yes, God Science willing. We're going to need help from right. wherever we can get it. I just think it's such a cool title, When the Lion Lays Down. When the Lion Lays Down. That's one of your longer titles. Yeah. But it's good. Probably would have been called When the Lion Lays Down with the Lamb, but it got a little too long. So we'll we'll leave it at that. When the Lion Lays Down, beautiful Christmas song from Dave Gunders, his beautiful daughters, Sarah and Rachel. From our troubadour to you on this Christmas. Merry Christmas, Shabbat Shalom, troubadour. And Merry Christmas, Shabbat Shalom, and uh, Good New Year's to everybody. Thanks for this beautiful song, When the Lion Lays Down.
future depends on what we decide. It may be our nature. It may be our pride. If they stand in the is a great sponsor of my show, but more than that, he's my lawyer, my end-of-life planning lawyer, and I've got two dogs. What about you? I have two dogs right now as well. And not only do you love your dogs at home with your kids and your wife, but you get involved with dog issues in your law practice. Tell everybody about that. So I will write pet trusts, which is, you can earmark money to take care of your pets. Um, you know, a lot of people, you know, they've got their dogs and you know, they love their dogs. But then if somebody were to, you know, if you if you were to pass away, you know, who's going to take your dogs? Who would, who would love your dogs as much as you do? I don't know that anybody would love your dogs as much as you do. But like, I grew up with dogs. And so if I were to pass away, then my parents or my siblings could take the dogs. So when you set up a pet trust, you can dictate who's going to get those dogs and then who you can leave money to take care of the dogs as well. I like working with you and I think you are ahead of your time. You have 15 different locations. How cool is that? It's, it is nice to be able to go to all the different locations and you know meet people where it's comfortable and more convenient for them. And nobody wants to drive from one part of Metro Denver to the other to meet with a lawyer. You will come to them. Yep. And I'll deal with traffic so you don't have to. Tell us how people can get in touch with you. My direct phone number is 720-394-6887. Or they can go to my website, which is mobileestateplanning.com. And again, that's mobileestateplanning.com. And there's even a schedule, you know, there's a book an appointment link on this on the website. All right, Michael Bailey. Thank you. Okay, here's the thing. You've been hurt. Maybe, God forbid, someone's been killed. You don't know what to do. If it happened in Colorado, please get a hold of me. Check out my website, craigscoloradolaw.com. craigscoloradolaw.com because I have four decades of experience. 
Sadly, I've helped a lot of people who have been hurt terribly through no fault of their own. 303-734-7156. Please call Craig, Craig Silverman, a voice for victims. 303-734-7156. Hey, I promised a great show, and I believe we delivered. Episode 187 with Harry McLean, Starkweather. What a book. I enjoy good books. This is not a good book. It's a great book, especially the epilogue, and I did not give it away. It is so fantastic. Yes, I'm just ruminating how good this guy can write. And at age... 81, it gives me and you inspiration. The same for our young troubadour, Dave Gunders. Merry Christmas and a happy new year. I hope to be back next week. Maybe at Craig's Colorado Corner in the interim. I say Merry Christmas to that fundraiser for Lauren Bobert, but not to Bobo. Mm, No, I'm not that forgiving. She was part of the insurrection too. Read my Colorado Sun column. Join us next week. Thank you. Tell a friend, share, subscribe, five stars. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. Tune in live every Saturday morning, 9 to noon, Mountain Time. Visit thecraigsilvermanshow.com for the podcast, blog, and more. Be sure to subscribe on all major podcasting platforms to be updated when new episodes are available. This has been The Craig Silverman Show.